1: And if you know, Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down, so. (laughs) So go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store.
2: My job is to talk about like, what are the impacts of these policies for people that are living through that hardship? Because if you're talking about it, but you're not living it, I can't trust that your judgment is all the way on it.
1: I'm Dana. I'm Daniel. And welcome to the finale of season two Climate change makers presented by Elevate, who for over 20 years have worked to create a just and equitable world in which everyone has clean and affordable heat, power, and water in their homes and communities, no matter who they are or where they live.
0: This whole season, we've been talking with some of the country's most impactful environmental justice visionaries and workers about what ideas guide their work which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. Our guest this episode is Diana Hernandez. Diana is a professor of socio-medical sciences at Columbia University's
1: Mailman School of Public Health. Also grateful to be joined by Adina, her young six-month-old daughter who is just a joy and delight, and as you will hear, chimes in with some of the best accents. We could ask for. Um, Diana was gracious with her time as she shared how she's expanding her research to complicate and add nuance to some of the narratives and understandings of housing systems and energy insecurity in her community, but also throughout this land.
0: We start our conversation with Diana with the same two-part question that we've started every episode of Climate Change Makers. In this time, how is the world treating her and how is she treating the world?
2: And this time I feel really fulfilled. Uh, I have basically been working professionally towards something that I think is finally kind of being recognized in a certain way. So I've been working on issues around housing and household energy as determinants of health. And I think that there are ways in which, you know, it's been acknowledged. And I always like to say that recognition is the first step to justice it opens up the possibilities for more people to acknowledge uh, some of the hardships. Personally, I feel really fulfilled um, and my hands are full um, in the you know kind of sweetest ways. I'm a new mom uh, and I have a really uh, amazing husband. Um, so my personal life is also really rich um, and I think that they're extremely kind of complimentary. So um, it's a really good uh, time in my life, I guess. <laughs> there isn't anything that I'm like, oh my gosh, I still need to fulfill like that thing.
0: That's beautiful. I, I, I'm i always happy to talk to people whenever we talk to them, but I love catching people on those moments where like, even if everything doesn't feel settled, it feels like the things that they've been building toward are happening and they're getting to kind of like bask in that for a minute. So happy to be talking to you and happy to be talking to you today.
1: Yeah. I, I just want to echo that. I think so often the the work requires so, so much of the people initiating and responsible for it, um, and so to hear you coming into this space, feeling fulfilled and feeling grounded, and not feeling depleted or diminished, is encouraging and exciting, and I think a good note for us to for us to dig deeper from.
0: Let's ground this a little bit in place. You know, we're not in the same city as you. I think it's important to start with where you are. So. How should we be placing this conversation? What's the context that we need to know about the space in which you do your work in order to even start to understand?
2: So I'm based in the South Bronx um, in Mott Haven, and I'm a third generation Bronxite. My grandmother came here in 1940 as part of kind of the initial mass migration into uh, New York City from Puerto Rico, in some ways, um, my connection to the island of Puerto Rico, even though. I'm a straight Rican, as they say, um, is in part uh, a reflection of kind of contemporary pressures, right? So there are new pressures, too, like climate change that have very much been pronounced um, on the island. But I'm situated in a pursuit of opportunity um, because that's really what I think my grandmother set forward. I'm also in complete acknowledgement of the continued need. So I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, and when I was studying in college, I remember reading um, this book about kids like me um, that basically grew up in my neighborhood and actually like the Diego Beekman houses where my grandmother like spent uh, the better part of her life. Was the kind of subject of that book? It was written by Jonathan Kozol in 1995. And when I was in college, taking urban studies class, like I realized, some white journalist was writing about me, and was writing about my community. I think that has really fueled um, my pursuit of um, an academic career and research and writing, um, and really kind of speaking truth from within writing my story and writing the story of other people that are like me. So I have this little plaque um, by my desk as a constant reminder of the pursuit to write our story, to write my story.
1: So I, I hear you naming, being in a space in in your studies where like research and the academy is intersecting with you naming, understanding, proliferating your own story. So take this question as literally as you need to so literal if it helps if it doesn't help it's 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 a metaphor what is a current research question that is exciting or challenging you whether it's in your literal studies or in your like study of life as a human being uh, relative to your work that's exciting or challenging right now
2: I've been Grappling with the problem of energy insecurity, um, and by that, put her down. No, she's got
0: she's got the sound effects for it. You
1: said energy yeah. She's like, <laughs> yeah, gas
2: release. Let's get it. It's that
1: that was a grapple if I've ever heard one.
0: <laughs> she sounded how I feel talking about these things. Sometimes it's perfect. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so let's see, um, energy insecurity at first was like this puzzle for me. And it really started when I was like going to people's homes in Boston and I was seeing like a certain reality that just a little bit dehumanizing. And that was the like kind of the feeling, right, that like people were living and struggling in real ways in their homes. And I was like, you know, there's something here. I put together, you know, all of the data points that I could from my research and set it aside. Then I came back to it. And in the meantime, I have written a bunch of or a few papers, not a bunch, but a few papers about like the policy implications of this problem.
1: I just want to say a few papers sounds like a bunch of papers to me.
2: That's enough to be a bunch.
1: You got the rest of us. Beat. That feels like a bunch. But continue,
2: <laughs> you know, and then the world where like, you know, I think we're producing more and more and more papers, it just uh, never feels like enough. But yeah, I had I had started to like kind of like put the whole like policy like agenda on these papers, like, oh, we need to be coordinating housing and energy policy and it was like really solutions based and you know the truth is that I come from a community of need I never really I mean I I haven't come into academia with the luxury of just kind of thinking through research questions for the sake of the research question and like knowledge production it really has been about trying to figure out the problem but you know my work right now is about stepping back and stepping back to describe the problem you know to really just lay it out, like, well, what are the intersections between the human experience and energy systems? And I've been kind of reviewing some news coverage about people living in Detroit and in Chicago. And like, inevitably, you see a Black family that is like putting on all of the eyes of the stove and turning on the oven and, you know, leaving the door open for heat, (laughs) Of course, that presents a bunch of challenges, like the risk of fire, the risk of toxic exposures. So my job has really been putting on the map the issue, describing it in all of the ways that I've seen it manifest, mostly around the U.S., and then letting other people take up the policy solutions. But I think that As an academic, I'm not really in a position to lay out all the solutions because I'm limited in terms of what I know. But I am also in a really unique position to describe the problem in a really comprehensive way. And I take that duty pretty seriously.
0: I love that this is where we we started because it reminds me of what has been the strongest through line in pretty much every conversation we've done on this show, which is for people who are engaged in this work. When there is recognition of need or challenge or even structural inequity, what ends up happening often is that they get brought into the room to do some of this description and accurate description and then kind of thanked for their description. And then the same people who made the decisions that set up that dynamic are then the ones supposedly coming up with the solutions. Um, And so I hear From your position, the the limits within academia of being the one bringing forward and and fighting in those solution-based processes, but I'm curious how you think about building pathways and structures and infrastructure so that the people who do get to do that work of enacting and envisioning solutions are the people who are encountering these lived experiences as well, so they can not just write their own story, but get to write the next chapter of it too.
2: That's such an excellent question. Um, and, you know, I believe in the power of partnership. And I don't think that any of us are kind of equipped to do it all. But I think that we can all kind of collectively work together toward that. The way that I, you know, kind of manifest that in my work has largely been through um, community academic partnerships with a number of different community organizations that are committed to working with communities that are directly impacted, you know, there are a number of organizations really around the US that I've worked with.
0: That's a, that's a funny response also to US I like that she was giving a raspberry
2: exactly yeah we don't believe in borders um, over
1: here I feel that
2: yeah exactly right exactly exactly she's like I must be uh, transnational why do we have to be uh, domestically focused <laughs> This is Adina, by the way. She has her own opinions. Uh, yeah. i uh, happy to bring Adina exactly. into the conversation. <laughs> she, she's been here. It's funny. I teach a class on energy equity in the built environment and uh, I taught it over the summer and I was like, she's three months old and she's already getting a graduate education. So um, <laughs> hopefully that just sets her up to do, to do a lot of amazing work. Anyway, um, you know, there's something very interesting about being an academic. And, and in one way, it's like extremely privileged, right? So... You know, having credentials, and also, like I mean, in my case, like I'm affiliated with a little bit of a fancy school. Um it's opened up kind of the possibility for my message to be heard and respected in a certain way. and And that's also kind of leveraged opportunities to to connect up and down, right? So, you know, like very recently, I've been working with the Energy Bar Association. And these are all lawyers that are working on like they have a grand challenge around energy and security. Um, and likewise, you know, I worked with a number of community-based organizations, you know, written op eds, you know, like provided testimony in cases like, you know, the kind of work that actually moves the dial, but not not ever really thinking about it as just kind of an individual pursuit, but as a collective and joint effort.
0: To that communal approach, I want to go back to your entry point, not even into this work, but to starting to think about uh, health disparity and the impacts on people's bodies and lived environments. Growing up in the community that you did in relation to your uh, family or the other people around you, before we get to the structures that were causing harm, I'm curious what were the communal kind of exercises or practices or experiments in communal health that you may have seen growing up? Like, how did people? in this particular lived environment, take care of themselves and each other?
2: I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just dancing. Like, I just grew up in a musical environment. Salsa was like somehow, you know, the backdrop of uh, my life growing up. But so was hip hop especially I would say, you know, growing up, my, and my dad was a part, a part of that was like, you know, the community gardens and like, they were convening spaces. They were social spaces, like, you know, and, and you'd have like the local band playing. And like, that was a big part of how I grew up and understanding joy and understanding, um, you know, like social connections and the kind of connectivity that Music and culture bring and performance and support, you know, like I used to love to dance and I always felt like the elders in the community, like encouraged that, you know, like besides teaching us the moves, it was also like clapping for us and helping us to feel big. Even though, you know, there were so many other structures that were working really to kind of make us, I guess, maybe feel small and unimportant and like remind us of that, you know, kind of social standing all the time. Within our communities, there was also like the possibility for being showcased in some ways. Um, At least that was, I think, a part of what I remember most and with a lot of like gratitude for that. You know, was that there was always a space for us to be who we were and to come as we were. I'm just thinking of like people that have come with their own like flaws and traumas, you know, the manifestation of their traumas. There was always space for that. Right. Like, you know, people were active drug users, for instance. Like there was always love. Like there wasn't really like this sense of like, oh, well, you know, you're not included. I think that there was always like a way to create the space uh, for, for people to be and for people to be loved. Um That was also the backdrop of growing up in the 80s and 90s, right? Like, you know, crack was real and opioid addiction and other things were also very real. HIV, like all of these different things. And I guess I grew up in a religious household. And so I guess it was semi-judgmental to some extent. But in the broader community, I also felt like there were opportunities for people to like come as they were. I'm not sure, again, like how relevant that piece is.
1: No, I would definitely say that you know, one humanity is a part of the environment, <laughs> uh, but but also like these relationships and these health consequences that that come out of communities whose needs aren't met. I think it is important that that those dynamics are included in environmental approaches to talking about how we we live together. So I receive it, and it feels very valid to me, and it it kind of actually. Puts me back to a curiosity of something you said earlier about where you are in kind of your journey or a transition you made in your work that I want to dig deeper in of going from proposing or outlining or interrogating solutions to to taking a step back and saying we actually need a deeper understanding of the problem. I, I think I can like parallel that experience to work around state violence and carceral systems that a lot of times folks with power of folks who maybe are even eager or well-intended to address what seems to be the most upfront consequence, have not actually engaged or researched the system or have a deep understanding. So a lot of people, for example, just to like simplify, want to talk about like police and prison reform when they don't understand policing or the history of the prison system, but they want to have a good like liberal air quote solution to get through the next cycle and for us to more or less feel better, but, you know, also address some things on the margins. So using that as kind of like, how I received it, or my parallel, I would love to go into that framing for you and, and, and some of that journey, and like what what are the misunderstandings? Um, and what were the things that maybe you thought you had a grasp on that were expanded as you decided to go deeper in in delving into what the problem actually is?
2: I mean, that's such a such an interesting kind of analogy because I think about the advances in understanding kind of the carceral system as a continuum but also the collateral consequences of incarceration. And that is not just on the individual and their ability to kind of reintegrate into society and all of that stuff, but also the kind of impacts on family members, on community members, that it isn't necessarily just that one person that's affected in their lifetime, but that it actually is kind of part of a larger impact. And I guess likewise, you know, in my work, I had been kind of focusing in a little bit on, on subsidized housing or existing policies like the low income home energy assistance program or the weatherization assistance program. I, as I saw the kind of work unfolding, not that any piece of it was inaccurate, but that it wasn't enough to really understand the breadth of the issue. And the kind of emerging challenges of climate change or the clean energy transition, right? I mean, those are also things that make people energy insecure. And it also is something that in some ways isn't just limited to people that are, you know, kind of working with limited economic resources, but that is something that is a lot more cross cutting so that any of us could be energy insecure when there's a power outage. So in California, when the utility company is cutting off energy services as a preemptive way to, you know, kind of protect against wildfires. The wildfires are climate change related, right? Because it's about drought and about our kind of climate shifting. You're excited about that?
0: She's, her policy recommendations are spot on. We're, we're going to address drought. We have to revisit our conceptions of border. Like I'm, you know, twenty forty two, whatever city council person over there, I, whatever, whatever role it is, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs>
2: Anyway, um, so, you know, you have these, uh, you know, public safety shutoffs that um, are happening in in California. And it really doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're going to be impacted by this. uh, But the impact is disparate. So... Who has the opportunity to have like kind of a resilient power source in that context? Uh, oftentimes it's not the poor, right? And it's not the medically vulnerable. I, it, part of my work is also just kind of opening up the possibility for us to see uh, vulnerability in, in a lot of different ways, but for all of us to kind of connect with that reality. And I think that that's an important step. I mean, in some ways, strategically, it, it almost makes sense for, you know, it to be so targeted to say, like, this is the one problem. And if we just kind of fix it with oh. this super easy to measure thing, that almost makes it like neater. But this problem isn't neat. It, it's like, like a relationship status. It's complicated, you know? Um, and it's also, um, You know, obviously there are different ways in which like, you know, who people are and like the kind of unique aspects of their life, be they a person of color, be they a low income person, be they someone living in public housing, all of those kind of inputs, if you will, have like implications for the outcomes of this kind of experience uh, of being unable to adequately meet your household energy needs. I want to be able to recognize all those different pieces and kind of have an umbrella concept that connects them and then connects all of us to the issue so that it doesn't have to can always be like those people are dealing with this, but that like we collectively are dealing with this. So we all have to be part of the solution because it's not just isolated to you know some groups. It's a risk that we all face essentially,
0: yeah, and that interconnectedness has actually. I mean, it seems to me, always been there, right? The reason why people who were dealing with the more acute uh, realities, that wasn't some random happenstance, that was the reason why other people weren't was because the risk and the divestment was passed on to them. And, and as an example of that, I want to talk a little bit about, I know, uh, as you mentioned, the focus of your work has been around this kind of energy insecurity and health impacts uh, in public housing. Um, and it's something that in moving from personally from New York to Chicago has been so striking coming here like 10 to 15 years after they demolished all the high rise housing projects here in a way that I think has implications that are still just kind of being understood uh, on what that's done both social fabric wise uh demographically environmentally like all of the levels that this kind of large-scale urban planning has happened um in a place where that widespread demolition has not been the case for a lot of reasons, including it's a more compact geographic area. What are the particular impacts of some of these ideas in that context? Um, And because that is, you know, because we live in a housing system where there's privatization and in some instances, uh, some idea of the public, um, where where are the unique opportunities for intervention in, in that space?
2: So I have to say that, um, You know, my work wasn't exactly, I mean, I do a lot of work on public housing, but my understanding of of energy insecurity actually was complicated by people's experience um, in, in public housing when they didn't have a bill. We only think about energy burdens, for instance, as a it's measured literally by your income to household energy expenditures. But there were people that didn't face a bill, but were still really like facing challenges in terms of keeping warm. One in two households in New York City, for instance, didn't have access to an AC. Um, You know, the 1985 heat wave in Chicago. You know, if you read uh, the heat wave by Eric Kleinenberg, you know, one way to read it is certainly about loneliness and about the elderly dying at home and about like social isolation. But when I read it, I was like, you know, most of these people could have survived if they they had a functional AC that they weren't worried about um, in terms of cost. And then as I've done some work on interventions and evaluating the impact of actually the privatization of public housing, not just in New York City, but also in California. What I found was that a big part of the capital improvements that happened in those transitions were very much about the heating and cooling systems. And, you know, there's a reason to, I think, be potentially suspicious of a shift toward the privatization of public housing. But people also reported being a lot more comfortable. And in being comfortable, they felt more dignified. And to me, you know, like a big part of that story was about like finally fixing dysfunctional heating systems and cooling systems and providing people with control around their thermal comfort and like almost like modernizing people's access to that energy infrastructure in their homes. So I'm a little less critical of what they call the re- you know the rental assistance demonstration programs. so the ones that are privatizing public housing because I've also seen that people have reported feeling safer that they you know like appreciate not having black mold and leaks in their homes. And I know that is in necessarily a popular way of thinking about these issues but unless you're actually like my job is to tell the truth as kind of dictated to me by the people that are on the ground I don't know that they're debating in the same ways that some I don't know Damon I don't I'm, I don't remember what you used in air quotes but like um you know solution
1: like, oriented policy guy
2: they're <laughs> idealistic and they're kind of driven by ideologies that don't necessarily resonate with people that are having to suffer all the time. And my job is to say that. Like, my job is to talk about, like, what are the impacts of these policies, even if they're unpopular, for people that are living through that hardship. Because if you're talking about it, but you're not living it, I can't trust that your judgment is all the way on it. So...
1: no, I really appreciate that nuance, and and it resonates because you know, like you said earlier, you know, we are all entangled with these (laughs) social systems and the environment. So yeah, it is complicated in terms of relationship status. In that complication, we observed a harm of the way in which the transitions from, from public to private occurred. But I think in trying to name or respond or create air quote solutions to that, we then idealized what came before. And so we talk about public housing as it aspired to be or or what what it is um, projected to be that was not measured up with the reality like so the truth is like here in chicago yes the demolition and the displacement has created so much violence so much discord but how do we talk about that relative to the violence and discord that was existing in under-resourced public housing and so the fact that the public was disinvested in a way where that it cannot be healthy or cannot be safe. Um, It's not just like a natural phenomenon, right? Or is that, you know, um, that's not an issue of climate. That's an issue of of choices that are being reproduced and intentionally wanting to make private commodities better than public resources.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, under the public domain, um, you know, public housing in particular, was just not a tenable place to live for a lot of people. And the minute that people had choices, it was like, well, this doesn't work for me. And even if they didn't have choices, that choice is sometimes extremely unsafe for a lot of different reasons, environmentally speaking, for sure. But also, you know, just like in terms of violence, like this environmental violence, political violence, structural violence, like all of those things are really present In public housing that have been disinvested in for a long time. So when I talk about how people feel after they have uh, new floors and kitchens and improved plumbing and upgraded electricity, they're really like talking about ways in which they feel invested in finally, that they have been living, you know, in some places like in these public housing units for generations and i never actually seen uh those improvements until you know the privatization so i am just going to make a case for the need not just for like reinvestment but maintenance and i guess i'm not going to necessarily like make a case for whether or not that has to come from the pu- the public or private domain you know i'm just going to say that we just need that particular outcome uh to be to be present i mean i don't know
0: whoever's whoever is willing to do it Like like someone, (laughs) someone
1: just let's get it it done. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And let me tell you the residents, that's what they're feeling. Like, I just need this stuff. You know, I'm not a social worker. I'm I'm a sociologist and, you know, I just do like community based research. But, you know, I go out into the field. You know how many people's homes I've been into and they just show me the hardship of their realities, opening cabinets where you just see so much mold. You know, this constant leak that doesn't go away. Like the kinds of stuff that like just weigh you down every day. You know, like I've had a small leak and I know I can get it addressed and it's still like, oh my gosh, like I would like for it to be going, you know, to be gone. But imagine having to live with that day in and day out. It's just frustrating. And you feel like you don't have a responsible entity that is responsive to, you know, your particular needs. We, we have to kind of hear more from people that again, are directly impacted and trust that they know what they need and that they can articulate that our jobs are to represent that rather than, you know, to like also layer it with all this other ideological baggage.
0: Mm. I think the last question that I want to ask is the same question that we've asked every guest through the show, you know, Part of the point of why we're doing this is not just to establish the how and why of what people do, um, but it's also so that organizations like Elevate and you know, other people doing, whether they're nonprofits or policy workers or things in, in that sphere who are doing this work, have an opportunity to hear what they should be doing better um, or, or, or what they need to be keeping in mind to, to make sure that what you just communicated is heard. Um, and so I'm curious, what do you feel like, whether it's Elevate specifically or just in general, people? in that space, need to know and need to keep in mind in order to be more effective and just participants in this fight for climate justice?
2: I I mean, I'm going to give Elevate a lot of props because I feel like they have a multi-pronged approach to what is ultimately a complex set of issues. You know, they're really kind of thinking through the body of work and, and how to do this you know, being responsive to a lot of different layers. And so I, I think that Anne and, and, and others at Elevate have been like a, a model uh, for for how to do this and, and to kind of think about local issues while also kind of connecting the dots um, to, you know, to see how it actually resonates in other places. Um, and so, you know, lots of props to them. You know, what moves the dial on this is, the persistence. And that too, um, I think Elevate has been, you know, incredibly diligent in like just staying the course. Because I think sometimes it's just easy to say like, you know, this is a fundable area right now. We'll just do this and then we'll like kind of switch gears and we'll go and pursue the next hot thing. Because a lot of times we don't see, like right now we're talking about environmental racism. There's a renewed interest in these issues. But the people that have been there, like, you know, consistently throughout the 30 years, the 40 years of appreciating that this is a problem, I think are the ones uh, that are looked to like elders, um, you know, in the field. Again, I come from a community where we respect our elders, where we trust our elders, where our, our elders support us and they celebrate us. And, you know, it's the organizations that continue to be Representing the front line um, and, you know, supporting the issues and staying consistent that I think are in the strongest position to be trusted because they weren't necessarily like, you know, deviating from that vision for something better in pursuit of the kind of opportunities that were happening in the interim, but that they, you know, like had a vision for the long game. That's how I see Elevate, and I think that that's an important lesson um, for other organizations that are also working in this space.
1: Folks, that was the dynamic duo of Diana Hernandez and her six-month-old daughter, Adina. One thing I'm taking from this conversation is, again, complicating some of our relationships to problems and solutions. And sometimes we can't rush to the air quote solution and we really have to understand the structural issues and the lived experience of the the so-called problems to, to better understand how we move forward.
0: Yeah, I think that's become so clear through all these conversations this season and overall on the show. And I loved what she showed us, that plaque that says, write your own story. I think that's really what we've been pushed to do as media makers through these two seasons. And what I think the call has been to collaborators and policy makers is not just provide the space for people to tell the story of their past, but understand the importance of them leading the way and writing the story
1: of their future. So thank you so much for for listening to to this season and to this episode. We invited you here. Not just the platform; these people doing amazing work, and not just to to partner and, and commend uh, the work that Elevate is doing in communities across the nation, but we invite you to see yourself as a climate change maker, and that you take action in your community and in your spaces uh, to continue this work because we need all of us. Get moving;
0: you got stuff to do, and if you work really hard between now and like March, maybe we'll just have you on next season. <laughs> So with that, make sure that you subscribe to Climate Change Makers wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the work of Elevate at elevatemp.org. Stay in tune with us and our other show, Ergo, at AIRGO Radio on everything, or just type AIRGO in your podcast apps. And I think that'll do it. It's been such a joy bringing you season two of Climate Change Makers.
1: Thank you so much for spending this time with us through this year. Much love to the people. Peace.